Good morning again. So thankful that uh, we can now enter our time in the Word. It's been a, a great time together so far, and I'm anticipating that the Holy Spirit will continue His uh, work in our hearts as we open up the Scriptures and, and uh, sit at His feet. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn with me to Mark chapter 13, Mark 13, and I want to uh, preach to you from that passage, Mark chapter 13. If you've paid attention in your life, you've probably not been able to remember a time when there hasn't been war going on someplace in the world, right? I mean, as long as I can remember, there's some war, some news outlet describing some war in some place. Sometimes it seems that the United States is involved and other times not, but without fail, there's always war, it seems like. The war in Ukraine, for example, has seen a lot of, of coverage. Innocent people dying, horrendous atrocities taking place in that country. Currently, according to a brief research that I did on the internet, there are 32 official wars going on right now around the world. Um, crime around the world is on the rise. Crime in the United States, for example, has gone up 28% since 2019. The hurricane season always seems to shock us, even though we see the same thing year after year uh, all over the planet, tsunamis and so forth, the people dying, carnage, etc. And so we've got to wonder, you know, who, who's in charge of this thing, right? Um, have there been good things in recent world history? Certainly. Uh, education and worldwide health is up. Disease and poverty are down. Christianity is gaining ground. But in spite of these advances, it seems that the world is on a downward trajectory because of sin. Um, this is just my observations. We have completed now our foray into a theology of the cross found in Mark chapters 14 through 16. And now we're going to be returning to uh, Mark chapter 13 to complete our sermon series of the Gospel of Mark. Now, I don't know, but I, I wanted to ask this, but I didn't want to really ask you, but I'm going to just present it. How many of you actually remembered that we hadn't done Mark 13? One person. That's good. Okay. Well, I guess I could have skipped it then and just explained to her why I didn't want to do it. But um, if you know Mark 13, you'll know why my hesitancy to, to preach from it. But uh, because we're committed to expository preaching uh, verse by verse, I thought it might be awkward for us to skip from 12 to 14 and pretend that 13 didn't exist, although many have done so in the past. <laughs> uh, so you'll, you'll give me some grace, I hope, as we, as we move through this um, couple-week series on eschatology. Eschatology, of course, is the study of end times. Es comes from the Greek word eschaton. Eschatology. So the Olivet Discourse is what is in view here in Mark 13. You may have heard that term, Olivet. It comes from where the sermon or teaching took place from, Mount of Olives. And so scholars, Bible teachers, and so forth call this the Olivet Discourse. It is well known to be the most difficult teaching of Christ uh, recorded in the Gospels. And so 
The Jews of the day who may have been listening to this uh, teaching expected the Messiah's arrival immediately ushering in his kingdom. Beginning with the removing of the imperialistic Roman Empire and establishing a geopolitical messianic kingdom uh, that would return Israel to the glory days of King Solomon and international power. That's what they were expecting their Messiah to produce. But when John the Baptist showed up and began his ministry declaring that the kingdom of God was at hand, this further complicated the issue in the minds of the Jews. They said, okay, here it is. We have a prophet here, an acknowledged prophet, and John the Baptist saying, here is the kingdom of God, it is at hand. He said that in Matthew 3, 2. So the people excitedly rallied around John the Baptist, as you know, and this enthusiasm continued to grow, especially when he introduced Jesus as the Messiah. <laughs> as you can imagine, put yourself in their shoes, for example. So at that moment, when Jesus, when Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist, his ministry officially began. And once it began, the Jews witnessed things that only a divine Messiah could witness, or could do rather, like bring people back from the dead, like produce food out of thin air, like walk on water, like cure disease, all these things that only God could do. And so he confirmed with his actions and teaching that he was indeed the one who John the Baptist introduced, the Messiah of Israel. When Jesus entered in Jerusalem riding on a colt of a donkey, this sent the, the crowds into orbit. They went nuts because this is exactly what was prophesied about the coming Messiah from Zechariah chapter 9. He would enter Jerusalem to begin his reign on the colt of a donkey. So they shouted the following which we repeat on Palm Sunday. Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were certain this was the beginning of the great kingdom they had all been taught would come eventually. Even Jesus' disciples, who had been taught by Jesus himself, were caught up in the frenzy and believed that they were in on the ground floor of the new kingdom of God's Messiah. In their minds, Everything was right on schedule to bring about the Messianic kingdom. They had completely overlooked the necessity of a suffering savior recorded in the Old Testament and spoke of as a sacrifice in the book of Isaiah. They could not fathom a dead Messiah. I think we would be with them if we were in their shoes. Even though Jesus had repeatedly told them of this end to his life, there was no place in their minds for such a thing as a dead Messiah. So the Olivet Discourse of Mark 13, Jesus predicts five things that I want to share with you today. Five things that would take place between his first coming, which was baby Jesus in the manger, and his second coming, the end of all time. Unfortunately, this is a very difficult passage to unpack, as I've already referred to almost impossible to understand completely, although, in fact, I don't know anybody, any commentator, who says that they've got it down pat. Um, but it is, it is a challenging passage, nonetheless. Jesus uses such rich prophetic language. Almost every single verse in Mark 13 has multiple allusions to both Old Testament 
and Jewish apocalyptic literature, it's, it is uh, quite the ball of yarn, if you would. The fact that there is no scholar who can perfectly unravel all this for us uh, helps us to see the importance of approaching this subject and this particular passage with humility, which I intend to do because I am not, I do not want you to hear from me this morning that we've got it figured out or I've got it figured out because that's not the case at all. There is a pre-millennial interpretation of this passage which we teach. There's a post-millennial interpretation, an all-millennial interpretation, pre-wrath, and even those like J.C. Ryle who think that there are two sieges on Jerusalem and two tribulations they're all over the board on interpreting what Jesus is saying here. So you can appreciate the challenge that's facing us. So let's just move on to Colossians and start that sermon series this morning, <laughs> if you don't mind. <laughs> no, but we are going to try to navigate this, <clears throat> this chapter humbly, of considering uh, and allowing what answers the most questions in our mind not to separate us from those that disagree with us. Okay, can we do that? Uh, Jesus had during the past few days of, of the events that I'm about to read for you made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So he made his triumphal entry Monday, um, used a fig tree to make some prophecies concerning Israel, cleansed the temple, debated with religious establishment. So this is all took place just a few days before this Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse took place on Wednesday, right? So this is quick, rapid succession of events that I'm putting in front of you. Um, what was implicit in his cleansing of the temple and cursing of the fig tree is now, has now become explicit in his prophecy concerning the destruction of the temple. In the Old Testament, Haggai, the prophet, said that the completed temple would prove God's blessing on Israel. And Jesus now, through his destruction prophecy, is communicating God's judgment. So the completed temple meant God's blessing. The destroyed temple meant God's judgment. And so that is what we're going to be seeing here. So Jesus not only declares judgment on the temple and on the Jews, of course, via the temple, but he physically abandons the temple. He walks away from the temple here in Mark 13, as you'll see in a moment, and walks, starts heading home over the Mount of Olives. So that was his last visit to um, uh, the temple. But he announced the destruction of the temple, and when he did, this sent alarm bells ringing in his disciples' ears. Uh, they clearly connected the temple's destruction with the end times, as you'll notice. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, who was Peter's brother, wanted clarification. So they come to Christ, which I'll read for you. Um, but his prophecy of the temple destruction didn't fit into their view of the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. And the, the reason this was is because they believed that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah and their view of what he would become. He was the one spoken of in Isaiah 9, for example, uh, on whose shoulders would bear the government. Remember, 
they were familiar with Zechariah 14, which describes the messianic rule of the nations. They knew every Old Testament promise of the messianic kingdom. They had memorized the promises of the Messiah's kingly rule and uh, of peace and knowledge and truth. They had no doubt that Jesus was the promised one. And so when he said the temple will be destroyed, they were dumbfounded. Put yourself in their shoes as I read for you the first 13 verses. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And as he came out of the temple, insert for the last time, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Alarm. Verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There are, uh, these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand of what you're going to say, but whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and the children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all, all by you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So if you were one of the disciples, you'd be sitting there with your mouth open. Like, uh, this is not what we've been taught our entire lives. So they, th this, is, this is stunning to them. Th these words, including all the way to the end of the chapter, which we'll get to in the weeks coming, totally threw them off balance. If they believed that Jesus was going to immediately set up his earthly kingdom, then what was all this talk that Jesus was giving them? Wars, earthquakes, famines, persecution, abomination of desolation, tribulation, and all this was just a sign that the end was near to Jesus' return? It seems that there has always been similar trouble that Jesus described, right? Which is why I began with my comments about war in Ukraine and so forth and our, our experience of world history since we've been alive. There have been false teachers and leaders. We've seen them. We've even seen people claim to be Christ, haven't we? Yeah. But between the first and second coming of Jesus, human history will continue to spiral into greater degrees of chaos until it reaches the time of tribulation, which Jesus also speaks about in this Olivet Discourse. And as much as I am committed to expository preaching, I, I find it difficult 
to preach on eschatology, the end time passages like this one, uh, because I want to apply the text to your life when I preach a sermon on any given passage and give you some handles to hang on in order to make sense of the text and to make sense of your life as it relates to the text, but this is particularly challenging when you're talking about eschatology, which is another reason this is uncomfortable for me. But I want to go through these five predictions that I just read for you from these 13 verses, one by one, and help you see them. And then at the end, I'm going to do my best to apply them for you. The first of all, in verses 1 and 2, we see Jesus predicting destruction. Jesus predicting destruction. So the, the disciples wanted to know that when all this would happen and what signs would accompany this, uh, he didn't give them specifics exactly, but he did provide them some direction. Um, and so this is what the, the Olivet Discourse is about. And this record of the Olivet Discourse is more proof of the divinity of Jesus. I mean, who, who else could predict such things but God? So he predicted the destruction of the temple, and guess what? It happened in A.D. 70, didn't it? Yeah. It was completely destroyed by Titus Vespasian. The temple has never been rebuilt. It was utterly and completely destroyed. The very thing Jesus predicted in verses 1 and 2. He said in verses 1 and 2, And Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be here one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. Complete destruction. Uh, he had spent his entire day in this temple that he just predicted would be destroyed on Wednesday. And then he began to walk home in the evening. And remember where he was staying was at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany, which was an eastern walk over the uh, Mount of Olives. At that moment, one of the disciples commented on the beauty of the temple. Sounds like something Peter would say when he's not paying attention. Um, um, he was ADD, I'm convinced of it. But listen, listen to how, to, to give whoever this was, if it was Peter, some, some breathing room, uh, listen to how Josephus, a first century historian, described the view of the temple from the Mount of Olives. The exterior of the building, I'm quoting, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. It, had, it would blow your mind, is what he's saying for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. The sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes. You couldn't even look at it. It was so brilliant. As from the solar rays reflecting off, to approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubics in length. One stone, 45 cubics in length, five cubics high, and six cubics in breadth. <laughs> this was an impressive building, to say the least. And so Peter, or whoever, had a right to say, wow, look at that building. The sun must have been setting on it and hitting it just perfectly. And so he made a comment, that would maybe be natural to all of us. Secondly, Jesus predicts deception, verses 3 through 6. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, 
these four guys came and asked him privately, tell us what are being the signs of these things are about to happen? Verse 4, um, and then 5, Jesus began to say, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will lead many astray. So these two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, privately asked Jesus about these events. And in Matthew 24, 3, we can read the whole context of the conversation, which is helpful to help us clarify exactly what they were asking. This is, this is what they asked, recorded by Matthew. Uh, chapter 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they combine Jesus' second coming to the end of the age. Right? That's what they were thinking. These four men wanted to know the end of the present age. How is this going to all come down? And these men, along with every other Jew of their time, believed that the Messiah would come and set up his kingdom now. So when Jesus establishes this isn't the case, they're full of questions. Right? But Jesus throws him for an unbelievable loop when he mentions that he would return to set up his earthly kingdom at a later date. It's like, what? It's like getting to Disneyland and having it being closed. Come back next summer. It's like... God's plan was that the Messiah would come twice, which we understand now, but we have more information. Once, the first time, he would come as a suffering servant, as we read of in Isaiah, the last 20 chapters of Isaiah. And then the second time as the conquering king, which we read of way off in Revelation chapter 19. So two times the Messiah would show up, and these two advents would be separated by a long period of time. This is what Jesus was explaining to them. And once Jesus has explained and predicted the immediate future of the destruction of the temple, he moved to answer and explain the distant future beyond the destruction of the temple. All right? So some believe that everything that Jesus explained here in Mark chapter 13 in the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled prior to A.D. 70. So when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, all the things that Jesus mentions in chapter 13 already were accomplished. This is, this is one interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. But it's hard for me to swallow for the following reasons. And here I'm giving a defense, if you will, a humble defense of why I personally and we teach premillennial, the premillennial approach uh, to the return of Christ. First of all, Jesus used the illustration of birth pangs in verse 8. Did you see that? If you have a pen, you might want to underline that word or those two words, birth pangs, because that is, in fact, an important description coming from the mouth of Jesus. Birth pangs. And Paul used the same words in 1 Thessalonians 5, describing the same events. This seems to me, at least, to indicate that he was speaking about the end of the church age, not the beginning of the church age. Why? Well, anybody who's been around pregnant women know birth pangs don't come until the end of the pregnancy, not the beginning. He was talking about the end of the church age, not the beginning of the church age, which is everything including up to A.D. 70. The, the temple's destruction was at the beginning of the church age, not the end of the church age. So the illustration of birth pangs seems to me to describe the end of the age, which could not apply to the events of the destruction of the temple. That's number one. Number two, Jesus said in verse 10 that the gospel must be preached to all nations, which had not occurred by A.D. 70. Not even close. 
Thirdly, Jesus spoke about the abomination of desolation. Now, there is some talk about historical events that could be interpreted as the abomination of desolation. That is, someone who doesn't belong in the Holy of Holies entering the Holy of Holies and desecrating it. Um, but um, this is the ultimate desecration spoken of by Paul and by Christ here in 13 of the Antichrist. Th this was to take place just prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't have the time to go into this, but Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 31, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, speak of this desolation, um, abomination of desolation. And that event did not take place in A.D. 70 and still hasn't occurred, in my view. The time of extreme tribulation is the fourth reason that I doubt that all things have occurred uh, prior to A.D. 70. The, the time of extreme tribulation, what does that mean? Well, there's been a lot of tribulation, a lot of difficulty since the beginning of creation, right? This is what he talks about in verse 19. And how those words could relate to what happened in the temple of A.D. 70 is difficult to comprehend. Extreme tribulation, he says in, in verse 19, he says, For these days there will be such tribulation that has not been from the beginning of creation. It's going to be worse than anything since the beginning of creation. And to me, the flood's pretty significant. A lot of people died in the flood. This is going to be greater tribulation than that, which didn't happen in A.D. 70. <laughs> so th this also troubles me about other interpretations um, of the Olivet Discourse. Fifthly and finally, again, my humble defense of the pre-tribulation or premillennial view of Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives is the heavenly signs that Jesus said would accompany the end of the age, including, as you, you will read if you go through the, the chapter here, the darkening of the sun and the moon, the falling stars, these things haven't happened. Um, that part of Jesus' prophecy has not been fulfilled, and hence the prophecy of Mark 13 could not be fully referring to A.D. 70. So when those things do happen is when Jesus is about to return. He gave the disciples some warning signs that we just read um, that would precede his return. And the first was, of course, this first point, deception. People would be deceived by false prophets, false teachers, false Christs. But we move on to Jesus' third predict prediction seen in verses 7 and 8. He predicts devastation. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 8, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes of various, in various places, and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. So he was continuing to explain the concept of birth pains here that will take place prior to his second return, his second coming. And these birth pains include what I just read for you, devastation from human conflict, that's wars, from natural disasters, that's things like earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, etc. 
You might even wonder when, if ever, there has not been wars, as I mentioned earlier. The, the point Jesus is making is that these things will see greatly increased frequency and intensity prior to his return. Not what we've already seen throughout our lives, but increased intensity, increased frequency of these things before his return. And I know that this causes concern for some Christians, or anybody really who hears of these things, about war, worldwide wars and conflicts and, and frightening natural disasters. But the, the point that I'm going to conclude with here in a moment is that the one who planned them is in charge of these things. These aren't happening willy-nilly and, oh, no, God's responding and reacting like, I didn't know this was going to happen. Now what? Change of plans? No. Aren't you thankful there hasn't been a change of plans issued by God or his church? Thank the Lord for that. In order for Jesus to return, these things will become more and more prevalent. And so these things are all building up to the time when the nations of the world will attack Israel and Jesus himself will return to Israel from heaven and deliver them and set up his earthly kingdom. And of course that is, we'd have to go back to Daniel 7, 9, and 11 and Zechariah 14 to fully demonstrate that to you. But the, this final battle that I just mentioned where Jesus comes and rescues Israel is what you've heard called Armageddon. Not the movie, the biblical event. Okay, the biblical event of Armageddon, it's described in Revelation 16 and Revelation 19. And this is the battle where Jesus destroys his enemies and throws the Antichrist into the lake of eternal fire. But increased human conflict um, isn't all the chaos that's in view. We have natural disasters also to deal with that it will be on the rise. And these won't be the run of the mill if there is such a thing, six to eight uh, level, Richter scale level earthquakes. No, these kind of earthquakes that Jesus is describing, uh, which I'll read for you in a moment from 11, are record-breaking, unheard of earthquakes. Listen to the Apostle John's description of these things from Revelation 16, verses 18 through 20. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since, the man, since man was on the earth, so great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. It is a worldwide earthquake. The great city was split into three, cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. This is a huge earthquake. The things that Jesus mentioned here are all going to be a part of God's judgment on this sinful world at the end of time. Fourthly, Jesus also predicts persecution, verses 9 through 12. So not only will the world be thrown into chaos with these intense wars, disastrous natural um, disasters, earthquakes, hurricanes, etc., but Christians will experience unparalleled persecution unparalleled. This will be a sign uh, from Jesus that he is about to return when the persecution of Christians reaches an epic level never experienced before. Um, persecution is certainly on the rise, no doubt. Uh, we, we know that more Christians have died for their faith in the past 100 years 
than all the previous years of church history combined, which indicates that the time is, in fact, approaching. At least one of the signs is becoming more and more visible. Increased persecution. But the final push of persecution against Christians is orchestrated, as it always has been, by Satan. And God promises that the gospel message of forgiveness of sins and grace by grace through faith in Christ will continue to spread at exponential levels throughout this persecution. So all of Satan's attempt to crush the gospel, to crush the gospel's savior, Jesus Christ, will only produce more believers as the end approaches. Christians will have amazing opportunities to share the gospel message everywhere they go, it says, even in courts and in prisons. I don't know how you discuss the war in Ukraine, crime in our streets, worldwide crisis with your non-Christian friends, but it's intended by God to be an opportunity for the gospel. I hope you understand that. It's not, you're not supposed to regurgitate Fox's talking points about these things or CNN's. This is an opportunity from God to share the gospel of a God who is in charge of all things and who has provided a way of escape from his judgment through Jesus Christ by faith. That's where your conversations ought to go with your friends at work. That if you want to watch news outlets, then do it to get evangelistic fodder is what I would say, otherwise it might be a waste of time. But the time of persecution is going to be intense to the point where families turn on those in their own families and report them to authorities and turn them over for imprisonment and even execution, if you can imagine. And then finally, the last prediction that I want to mention here is found in verse 13. He tells us that the reason there will be such intense persecution is that the world hates me. All right, there will be ex exhaustive persecution and hatred of believers, followers of Christ. He said this in John 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. Does this surprise us, Christians, that the world would like nothing better than to get rid of us? The, the, have you ever tried this as a conversation starter at work? Hey, sinners, listen up. Doesn't go over well, does it? No. And I'm not suggesting you do that, by the way. Um, but the reason that, that Christians are hated, actually authentic Christians are hated, is because they're like Christ. They're the aroma of the gospel. They're the standard of righteousness. And at the end of verse 13, here, um, he says, those who endure to the end will be saved. Um, what a encouraging promise that is. Some people have misunderstood this, um, and I would say, definitely misinterpreted it because Jesus didn't mean that we can earn our salvation if we just stick it out to the end. What would that problem produce? I mean, that belief produce? The problem of work salvation. 
right? If you just stick it out, bear down, try hard, and don't give up, then you'll be saved. I mean, there are some Germans among us who might be able to pull that off. <laughs> he didn't mean that you can earn your salvation. Um, Jesus also didn't mean that we can lose our salvation if we don't persevere. And a lot of you are going, Whew. Good, right? Both of these bad interpretations of, of verse 13 here are refuted all over the place in the New Testament. We could do another whole 13-week sermon series on the refutation of those two bad doctrines. So what was Jesus saying there at the end of verse 13? Simply that those who endure suffering for the name of Christ and his gospel demonstrate the authenticity of their faith is what he was saying. You see someone dying at a burning stake, their faith is authentic. This is an argument also for the authenticity of all the gospel because what? 11 out of the 12 apostles died by martyrdom. Would they have died by martyrdom if their story was false, made up? I wouldn't go there. <laughs> I don't think anybody would. No. They died at the stake. They died being crucified upside down. They died being sawn in two, being boiled in oil, etc. Because what they believed was true. Friends, if we truly know Jesus, we'll be willing to suffer for him. We'll do it joyfully, as Peter and John did in Acts 5. They, they were just beaten to a bloody pulp by the Sanhedrin, and they walked out as well as they could walk, rejoicing that they suffered for the name of Christ. We also know that any suffering for Christ will be greatly rewarded. That's mentioned a few times in the New Testament, isn't it? And so I want to conclude with a couple verses, one from Paul in 2 Timothy and one from John in Revelation 22, but in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, Paul said this, right towards the end of his life, the Lord will rescue me from every evil. Think about that. The Lord's gonna rescue me from every evil, and he knew he was about to be killed, about to have his head chopped off. The Lord's gonna rescue me from every evil, and he didn't say except for having my head chopped off. That was an evil. To him. But the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. There's the rescue. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What an attitude. Revelation 22:13. I want you to turn there in your Bibles with me, if you would. And I want you to, if you have access to a pen, keep it handy. <clears throat> Because this is where I'm going to try to apply um, some eschatology to your life today. In Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, which is not insignificant, we're in, if there is a book of eschatology, it's Revelation, right? <laughs> this is at the end of all the eschatological mayhem in Revelation. Verse 13, Jesus is speaking. 
I am the Alpha and Omega. Who knows what that is? First and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Brackets, first and last. And in case you didn't get it, he says it in the next phrase. First and last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Before anything was, God was. After everything is, God will be. So how do you think things are going to go in between? Out of control mayhem? No. He's saying these things through the pen of the Apostle John to confirm to your hearts that he is in control of all of these things. You don't need to spend the rest of your life in fear, wondering if you're going to make it out of the tribulation if it happens, or whether or not you're going to lose your job, or whether or not this or that. No. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The same sovereign God who was there before one star was created will be there after the last star burns out. By the way, with us. <laughs> with us who've embraced him. With us who put our complete hope and trust in him and not anything else, not anything earthly. Not in good times, not in comfort. That's not our hope, is it? Your comfort can be taken. All things that bring you joy can be taken, except your joy in Christ. Right? So friends, come hell or high water, praise God. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we, we humbly bow before you, acknowledging our lack of understanding, acknowledging uh, our complete dependence, but rejoicing in your complete sustaining grace. We rejoice in, in all that you are for us before we were born and, and throughout our lives and long after we die, we rejoice in who you are for us. That, that you brought us into existence for your glory and our joy. And that project never changes. You continue to encourage us, bless us, strengthen us, and one day bring us into your presence for an eternity of joyful bliss. Oh God, we, we trust you even when, when times seem dark and daunting in our own lives and in our own world, we turn our eyes to you because you are our only hope. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Father. Praise you, Spirit. Amen.